Last time we looked at Revelation chapter 5, I hope you remember that there was a scroll, the title deed to all that's to come. And nobody could open that scroll, it was sealed. And people were weeping and wailing and gnashing teeth. Well, they weren't gnashing teeth, but you get the point, right? There's only one found worthy to bring into existence all we see in Revelation 6 through 19. And of course, that is Jesus Christ, the only one worthy to open the scroll. And so what we've seen in, in Revelation 4 and 5 is, is, is worship taking place there in heaven. And it's really preparation for the wrath that's described in the whole middle part of your book of the Bible we call the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it might seem strange to us that worship and judgment actually go together. But this is because of really bad theology. Bad theology. See, we don't fully understand either the holiness of God nor the sinfulness of mankind. Nor do we grasp the total picture of what God wants to accomplish and how the forces of evil have opposed Him. And so, my friends... The good news is God is long-suffering, and eventually He is going to judge sin, and He will defend His servants. This is one of the beautiful things we see in this book. And so as as we look at a lot of bad stuff taking place here, don't lose sight of the big picture. The very first verse in this Bible, in this book of the Bible says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the main person the main actor that we see in all of what's taking place here. And there's a lot of confusion around uh, the, 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 the particularly chapter 6 through 19. I can understand that, particularly when you have different hermeneutics, uh, because there's only one correct interpretation of Scripture, but when you have different ways of interpreting, you're going to come to different conclusions. And I've even heard some preachers say they will not preach this this particular section of the Bible. They, they don't even want to go here because there's a lot of confusion and misinterpretations and opinions. So it's challenging. Right? We, we want to admit it is challenging and none of us know everything. Right? So we want to come at this with humility and pray for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from His Word today. Well, let's start, as we think about the tribulation here, I've given you a quick little end times outline on the screen there for you. Uh, You'll see the blue line at the top is what takes place in heaven. And then corresponding with what's taking place in heaven, right below that you'll see, well, there's different colors for the different time periods of what happens on earth. And then the red line on the Bible, of course, is hell. Revelation tells us that God is going to throw hell into the lake of fire. And that is the eternal state for all unbelievers. And the eternal state for all Christians is on the is on the um that yellow part right at the end. And we'll we'll get there eventually in the book of Revelation. But let's start with this middle part of the, the book of your Bible here is uh is is an interesting part after we've seen what's taking place there at the throne of God, we need to understand the tribulation. And to start, let's just talk about the nature 
the nature of the tribulation. So if you're taking notes or you got your outlines, you'll see the nature of the tribulation is is uh, well defined for us in 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 this book as well as other books. But uh, I've given you a verse on the screen from Joel. Joel's a minor prophet of God. And in Joel 1, verse 15, it's on the screen. It says, Alas for the day, for the day of Yahweh is near. Yeah, by the way, day of Yahweh starts uh, beginning of the tribulation. And uh, notice, notice the nature of the day of Yahweh, or this time period here is, is defined for you as destruction. Destruction. Now, there's a lot more than that that takes place, but that's what Joel uh, mentions. And so there's... There, really helpful when you compare Scripture with Scripture. There's no better way to understand this tribulation period than to just just let Scripture speak for itself, right? Just go through your Bible and, and look at your cross-references. I encourage you to do so. We don't have time for that today, but uh, we, we do have uh, one here in Revelation chapter 6 to look at, though. Look at Revelation 6. Uh, just going to read a couple verses. We don't have time to read all these verses in, in through the whole Bible here today. But uh, look at Revelation 6, verse 15. Verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall! Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? <laughs> wow. So this is the be- toward the beginning of, uh, of, the, of the judgments that are going to take place during the tribulation period. And when you, when you look at all your cross-references in your Bible, and if you have a good study Bible, in the middle column or at the bottom somewhere, or maybe even on the edge, you'll see lots of cross-references uh, I mean, all the way from, from Deuteronomy, the prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, even into your New Testament, uh, Matthew, and First Thessalonians, Luke, just to name a few places in your Bible. You see lots of descriptions of this time period, and here's just some of the, the descriptions I, I've seen in the Bible. So we've, we've seen, for example, wrath. Uh, mentioned here, judgment, indignation, trial, trouble, destruction, darkness, desolation, overturning, and punishment. Just to name a few. Right? You combine all those words together and you get a lot of bad stuff. Right? A lot of bad stuff. So that's the nature of the tribulation. I don't want to park there because you're going to see a lot of that as we go through this, but Where's all this coming from? What's the source of the tribulation? Again, Joel tells us in one word. Joel 1.15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of Yahweh is near, and as destruction from who? Notice it's not Satan. Satan is not mentioned in that verse. <laughs> Nor does it mention Antichrist there. Although... God is going to use Satan and the Antichrist during this time period. But notice, this comes from the Almighty Himself. He is the source of the tribulation. So, from this verse, and others as well, it cannot be denied here that this period is particularly a time when God's wrath and His judgment fall on the people of the earth and even the earth itself. So this wrath is uh, it's not from the people. 
It's not from Satan, except, of course, when God might use these various agencies as, as a tool, as a channel for, the, uh, for bringing about His purposes and will. And so the, clearly the Bible and, and God Himself is saying that He is the source of this period called the Tribulation. And you might ask, well, why is this in our Bible and why is God going to do this in the future? Well, here's, friends, two purposes for the Tribulation. Okay, number one. You're filling the blank is purpose, by the way. Here's the purpose. First purpose is that God is going to prepare the nation of Israel for her Messiah. So, did you hear that? I mentioned Israel. So God's not done with Israel. (laughs) He hasn't given up on them. Uh, In fact, uh, look what the prophet Daniel says here. Daniel 12, verse 1. Up there for you. Daniel 12, 1 says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. That's Israel. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was, uh, ever since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, and everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. I assume that's referring to the book of life. All the Christians in the book of life will be delivered. So God has great purposes for His special people, Israel, during this tribulation period. And He's going to bring about a great conversion of a huge multitude of the Jews, the Hebrews. And they're going to enter into Christ's kingdom and experience all the fulfillments, the ultimate fulfillments of those Old Testament covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and the new covenant. All ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you say, how's, how's God going to do this? Number one, God's going to use the 144,000. We have somebody here who's mentioned in this list. In chapter 7, you will find the list of the 144,000. So God is not going to abandon this planet to Satan and Antichrist. But what He is going to do, He's going to raise up these Israeli evangelists and missionaries. Uh, so, by the way, they are not Jehovah's Witnesses. And, uh, and, and they, are cer- they certainly do not represent the church. Alright? So please don't, don't twist, we don't want to twist Scripture. I know none of you want to do that. Uh, just, we just take it for this plain reading of what it says, and, and you will come to some conclusions here I'll point out in a moment. So what does the Bible tell us about these people? They're not Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not representatives of the church. So here's what chapter 7 says. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, because it says, I, The Apostle John heard the number of the sealed, these, these Christians, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. They're all mentioned there. Verses 5 through 8. So you have 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. That's a good starting point. We can learn more about them in verse 3. So uh, verse 3 says, uh, do not, this is, uh, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So these are 
sealed servants, protected by God. They are servants of God. That makes them Christians. They're, they're saved individuals. They're not representing anything. These are individuals. And notice they're sealed. Uh, in other words, that, that God is the one who's securing and protecting His servants from the judgments and even from Satan himself. So the conclusion, you put all this together, you have 144,000 people who are Jewish evangelists, who are kept secure by God. They were proclaiming this gospel, this good news, during the tribulation period. And so God's going to use them to bring about a great harvest. So God's not done with Israel. And, and there's, 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 other, there's some other people mentioned here in, verse, in chapter 11. Sorry, We also see in chapter 11 God's going to use the two witnesses. Look at chapter 11. Two witnesses mentioned here in chapter 11. So according to this chapter, God's going to raise up two very special individuals during the tribulation period. They are going to bear testimony for Jesus Christ. God is going to give them uh, special abilities to work uh, some some awesome miracles. God-enabled miracles. For example, look at chapter 11, verse 5. Chapter 11, verse 5, it says, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall upon the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Don't mess with these dudes. God's giving them great power here. And you say, well, why is God doing that? Why is He going to do that? Well, well, those, those miracles are actually validating their ministry and what they're preaching as being from God. God often does that with His prophets and apostles. Jesus did that as well. So their ministry, notice verse 8. According to verse 8, their ministry is centered in Jerusalem. It's centered in Jerusalem, according to verse 8. It says um, that their dead bodies... Because the Antichrist is going to kill them. Uh, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That's Jerusalem. That, that, that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So if you, the great city has to be Jerusalem because that's where Jesus was crucified. And so notice um, something else about them. They're clothed in sackcloth according to verse 3. Verse 3 says, I... Uh, same chapter, verse chapter 11. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So today we're looking at the, uh, the first 1,260 days of the tribulation. That first three and a half years, first half of it. You say, well, why are these guys clothed in sackcloth? Well, as God often does with His prophets, He makes them do weird things because they're visual illustrations of a point, a truth that God is trying to make. <laughs> so you can thank God you're not one of His prophets, I guess. 
But uh, they're wearing sackcloth as a sign of mourning and repentance. It's a sign of mourning and repentance. And so we can conclude from these two witnesses that they're announcing God's message, they're bringing God's message of repentance, and the people need to repent. They need to change their mind in regard to their sin and turn to Christ because the King is coming. The King is coming. Well, that's purpose number one. The second purpose of the tribulation is that God will judge unbelievers for their sinfulness. If they do not repent, by the way, there's still hope, even in the tribulation. Many will be saved. But if they do not repent, if they do not change their mind in regard to their sin, God will judge them. So the great prophet Jeremiah in chapter 25 had this to say. Look at this. Put it on the screen here for you. It says that Yahweh will roar from on high and from His holy habitation utter His voice. He will roar mightily against His fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor roars down to the ends of the earth for Yahweh has an indictment against the nations. He's entering into judgment with all flesh and the wicked He will put to the sword, declares Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. Notice this time period is going to reach out to all nations of the earth. And so, from these verses here, it's seen that God is the one who's judging the nations of the earth. And why is He doing this? It's because of their godlessness. Their godlessness. And how is God going to do this? Well, God's going to use a series of judgments that we see going from Revelation 6 on into chapter 19. I'll put a little screenshot here on on the screen here for you. There's three judgments mentioned in Revelation 6 to 19. You have sealed judgments. There's seven of those. You have seven trumpet judgments. And then there's going to be seven bowl judgments that are going to fall on the people of this earth during the tribulation period. And this is uh, these are the main ways that God is going to bring judgment to the nations of the earth, particularly those who have abandoned God and rebelled against Him. You say, okay, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty scary stuff. And yeah, it is pretty scary stuff, all right? So when's that going to happen? You want to know when that's going to happen? This is important to know, by the way, because I've heard from people who are freaking out. They're living in fear because they think they're in the seven-year tribulation right now. There are people today who think this. And if you don't know your Bible, I can see how you would come to that conclusion. But if you know your Bible, God tells you the time of the tribulation. So there's your fill-in-the-blank. The time of the tribulation. We need to understand the time of the tribulation period, and so in order to do that, it's, it's important and, and necessary. We actually go back and look, um, particularly the prophecies of Daniel are really helpful here to give us a chronology of, of Israel's future history. So look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 gives us a prophecy called the 70 weeks of Daniel. The 70 weeks of Daniel. By the way, week just stands for seven years. 
So 70 times 7 years, you come up with 490 years. Okay? So there's 490 years we're talking about here. And so Daniel gives us a, a wonderful chronology of Israel's, some of their past history as well as future history. So you'll see where the tribulation comes in in here in a moment. Look at Daniel 9, verse 24. Daniel 9, 24 says that 70 weeks or 490 years are decreed about your people and your holy city. Let's oh, park there for a moment. Notice this prophecy is not for you. Not for you. How do we know that? Because there's some important truths in Daniel's 70-week prophecy we need to understand. First of all, the entire prophecy, according to that verse, has to do with which people? It is for Daniel's people and a particular city. So it's not for you. It is for Daniel's people and Daniel's city. And of course, we are talking about the nation of Israel. That's Daniel's people. And Daniel's city is the city of Jerusalem. God tells you who, he's, who this prophecy is referring to. Now, okay, so now we know the context. Moving on. He gives you the, the blessings, the purposes here. So it's for Daniel's people and his holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore, and understand, that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, or seven years. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations, or decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week or seven years. And for half of that seven years or week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now some of you might be wondering, I thought we were studying Revelation. Why are we in Daniel? Because well, Revelation doesn't tell you everything. Okay? doesn't tell you everything. And so Daniel's going to help you fill in some blanks that are, that are missing, some puzzle pieces that aren't there so you can get the bigger picture. So what do we learn, these important truths in Daniel's prophecy? So we've already seen, number one, that the entire prophecy here has to do with, with Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Number two, notice there's two different princes mentioned here. So some people get confused if you don't see two princes. Don't confuse them. The first prince is named Messiah the Prince in verse 25. And then in verse 26, you have a second prince who is described as the prince who is to come. By the way, that's the Antichrist, if, in case you're wondering. Uh, the prince who is to come is the Antichrist. We'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. But another truth, truth number three. This entire time period involves uh, a, a, an exact specified 
amount of years, 70 weeks, Daniel calls them, according to verse 24. Those 70 weeks, or 490 years, are then divided into three groups, okay? Uh, I'll put a little uh, PowerPoint slide on up here for you. I, I, I hope that doesn't confuse you, because this is what Daniel's doing. He's broken it up into three, the 490 years into three parts. So that notice the first part's a period of seven years, and then after that you get a period of 62 weeks, and then you have a period of one week or seven years at, at the end. Now notice there's a little squiggly line. That's because we're in the squiggly line time period right now. That, that seven-year period hasn't happened yet. But everything before that has already happened. Right? Are we clear? Because people really get confused on this. So if you don't, come talk to me afterward, okay? But notice the, the beginning of the whole period is fixed. It's fixed. God said in verse 25, it, it, it started with the going forth of a command by a king to restore and build Jerusalem. Well, we know when that happened. That happened in the year 445 B.C. And you'll notice, we even know the king's name. His name is Artaxerxes. <laughs> well, who? We, read the book of Nehemiah. Read Ezra. Right? We, we know who did this. We know who went to build the walls in Jerusalem, right? Anyway, so at the end of the 69 weeks, we also see, uh, this is number five. At the end of that time period, you'll see there, there's, there's the appearance of Messiah as the prince of Israel. And then at a later time, after the 69 weeks, Messiah the prince, it says, will be cut off. Well, what does that mean? Well, guess what? Messiah died in the holy city of Jerusalem, right? And so Jerusalem, again, we see is going, according to verse 26, is going to be destroyed. Well, when did that happen? Jesus talked about that as well. Right? 70 A.D., the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem and its temple, and it's never been the same ever since 70 A.D. And then number seven, we also learn here that after those two important events, you come to this last seven-year time period. And the beginning of that is, is actually marked by a very specific event. You need to know this. Because if you know what the Bible says, you'll know you're not in the tribulation period yet. Okay? But when this happens, you'll know the seven-year tribulation will start. How does it start? Look at verse 27. Here's how the tribulation starts. We have this second prince, the prince to come, the Antichrist. He's going to establish a covenant or a peace treaty. And it's going to be between... The prince in a particular nation. Now we know that is that nation is Israel. And he's going to do it for the seven-year period, according to verse 27 here. And then Daniel also tells us that right in the middle of the seven-year period, or that 70th week, Antichrist is going to break his peace treaty with Israel, and then he's going to suddenly cause the Jewish sacrifices and the offerings to stop, and then he's going to bring on that people a 
a very serious, deadly time of wrath and desolation lasting to the end of the tribulation period, according to verse 27. The last thing we see, number 9, according to verse 24, with the completion of the 70, those 70 weeks, there's going to be a time of great blessing for the nation of Israel. You say, well, what nation, what blessings could possibly come out of such desolation and destruction and wrath? Well, look at verse 24. Here's the blessings for Israel. Notice these are for Israel, Daniel's people. Verse 24, we see, first of all, God is going to finish the transgression. That willful rebellion of Israel is going to be brought to an end by these events of the tribulation. And God is going to use this to bring His people back to Himself. And many will return to the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Because on the whole, Israel's not doing that right now, are they? And in number two, we see a second blessing there in verse 24, to make an end of sins. And, and so we see in this time period, Israel is going to repent of their sin and turn to their Messiah, their, their king. Number three, third blessing, to make reconciliation for iniquity. And so how did that happen? The death of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the only thing that can take care of anybody's sin. Your greatest problem is your sin, and Jesus is the only one strong enough and able and willing to do such a thing. And so is the cross. The cross work of Christ is the basis for Israel's cleansing, and he's the one who brings in the new covenant. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room at the Last Supper? It's the, what, what, what's going to institute this new covenant? Jesus said, it's instituted in my blood, my death sacrifice, and the atonement. Number four, fourth blessing for Israel is it's to bring in everlasting righteousness. And so after Israel repents, Messiah's kingdom will be established then during the millennial kingdom after the tribulation. And number five, fifth blessing is to seal up vision and prophecy. So the goal there is indicating it's a complete fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It's also coupled with this idea that there's going to be no additional prophetic information. Right? The scroll is complete, according to Revelation 5. Why is that? We will not need any more revelation because... Eventually, we're going to have King Jesus himself. (laughs) We're going to have King Jesus himself. He's going to return. He's going to establish his kingdom forever. And then the last blessing for Israel, verse 6, is to anoint the most holy. And it has to do with the consecration of the future temple that's going to be the center of worship during the millennial kingdom. It's interesting when you look at these six blessings, by the way, Six promised blessings, all relating to the two works of the Messiah, his death and his reign. See, you could summarize these that the first three are fulfilled, at least in principle, at Christ's first coming. The last three blessings you see there in Daniel 9.24 are completed by the second coming of Christ. There's a lot of things fulfilled in 
ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And yet again, here we have more. So some of you really want to dig into Revelation. Okay, here we go. Okay, you ready? Let's get into some of the events of the tribulation. All right, we need to lay some groundwork there. Understanding the purpose and the time and the nature and the source and all that sort of stuff. So let's think of the events, at least in the first half of the tribulation. Remember what Daniel said, by the way. How do we know the first half? When does it start? It starts when the Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel. That hasn't happened yet. What's the halfway point of the tribulation? When Antichrist breaks his peace treaty with Israel, stops the sacrifices in the Jewish temple, and he's going to set himself up to be God. All right? So we're looking at that first half. All right? So here in chapter 6 of Revelation, not Daniel, back to Revelation 6, we have the six seal, the first six seal judgments are poured out on the earth. Look at Revelation 6. Because in Revelation 6, you've got uh, what's often called the four horsemen. <clears throat> and they're indicating something. They're representative of something. And the first seal judgment is known as the conqueror. That's not original with me. All right. So the, he's called the conqueror because you look at Revelation 6, verse 1. Look what it says. Now I watched. John's, John's watching this. And he sees the lamb opened up one of the seven seals. Who's the lamb? According to chapter 5, that's Jesus. So Jesus Christ, he's king of kings, lord of lords. He, has, he is worthy to open these judgments. And it says he opens the... Uh, one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures say with a, a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So that's why he often gets called the conqueror. The Bible says he's conquering. Now, there, there's some interesting things. I don't know if you noticed, but no, notice what's in his hand. What's in this, the rider's hand? He has a bow, but notice the Bible doesn't mention any arrows. No arrows, indicating although he, he, is, he has military strength, at least in the beginning, he's doing his conquering through diplomacy. And since he's wearing a crown, notice the crown... Uh, we know that he is going to be successful in his efforts. He, he has, he's going to have great authority. You say, well, who's that writer? Well, based on these descriptions, comparing Scripture with Scripture, he must be the Antichrist who's going to bring about this temporary peace through diplomacy, through deceit, through his clever maneuvering. He's a great politician. <laughs> he's going to bring the, the conquering through his... Peaceful efforts, at least to start with. So that's the first judgment that Christ is going to pour out on the earth. Yes, that's a judgment. And he's using a politician. The second seal judgment is conflict on the earth. Look at verse 3. So we have conflict on the earth in verse 3. It says, when, when he opened, Jesus opens the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Ooh, imagine that. As far as I know, no one's ever ridden a bright red horse. Look at this one. Its rider was permitted to take peace from it 
from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So you have conflict on the earth. Some people call this World War III. I don't know if it's going to be World War III, but it's going to be a lot of death and destruction. And so when Daniel's three kings oppose the Antichrist, the Bible says the, the Antichrist is going to respond with, with, with death. He's going to swiftly crush his enemies, and he's going to bring death on a massive scale, and he's going to be that one horn. He's going to be the one king rising above the other rulers of this earth. So there's going to be great conflict on the earth. And the third judgment seal that Christ will open is mentioned in verse 5. Verse 5 says, He opened the third seal. I heard the living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pail of a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So you need to understand the context a little bit. What often happens after war? I hope you guys are historians. What often happens in the aftermath of war, you end up with rampant inflation. <laughs> Just study what happened after World War I, particularly in Germany. In Germany, inflation was so bad, people were taking wheelbarrow loads of their, of their cash just to buy a loaf of bread. And that's often what happens in, in, in war, and, and that is the suggestion here. And the Bible's indicating that a man is going to have to work all day because that's what a denarius is. A denarius was a day's wage for the common worker of the day. So you work an entire day just to get enough food to eat. There's not enough money to do anything else. Nothing's left over for his family. Nothing's left over for any pleasures. But on the other hand, it sounds like the wealthy seem to do just fine because oil and wine are mentioned there. And oil and wine are symbols of wealth during this time period anyway. But did you notice that the third horseman, colors mean something here, he's going to take a very heavy toll on this world through death and sickness. That black horse is riding... And he's writing with an obvious symbol here. In fact, one of the great plagues of this earth in history was called the Black Death. Why was it called the Black Death? Like in the, what was it, the 1300s, if I remember correctly? Why was it called that? A lot of death. Uh, some people estimate 33% of Europe was decimated by the Black Death. That's hard to know exactly, but there's a lot of death and sickness going to take place during this time period as well. And so, so, so when Christ opens this judgment, we've got a lot of famine and disease. And that's pretty typical in following from war. But there's a fourth horseman mentioned here, which is the four-sealed judgment coming from Jesus. Look at verse 7. Uh, so Jesus opens the fourth seal, I, and, and John hears the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. 
and its writer's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Sorry, did I read that earlier? Anyway, notice a pale horse. Think something that's kind of colorless. The appearance is symbolizing death. The writer's called death. So apparently, uh, if you base your numbers based on the current uh, statistics of the earth, you're going to have, what, 2 billion people die. Imagine that. 2 billion people die in one judgment. But it also mentions Hades or, or hell there. And you say, why is hell following death? Because it, it's, it's showing that, that these people are unbelievers. Christ is bringing judgment on the rebellious unbelievers who refuse to repent. But there's a fifth seal judgment opened by Christ in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we have the cry of the martyrs. So not everybody who dies during the tribulation is an unbeliever. The Antichrist will kill many Christians as well. So shortly after the tribulation starts, there's going to be many people who will come to faith in Christ through the evangelists like the 144,000 and the two witnesses. Most of these tribulation saints are going to be killed by the forces of Antichrist. And so, despite the desperate evil, despite all the horrors of the war and the famines, God is still in control of these earthly events. And even the very number of the martyrs has been fixed by God's divine decree. The throne is still in heaven. His authority still reigns supreme over all of His creation. There's a sixth seal opened by Jesus in verse 12. Look at verse 12. We have cosmic disturbances coming here in verse 12. When he, that's Jesus, opens the sixth seal, I looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. May I remind you, New Zealand is an island, several islands. It's not good news if you live in New Zealand, is it? Verse 15, when the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
So all the unbelievers left in New Zealand who think, well, I'll just flee New Zealand since that's going to go into the ocean. I'll, I'll go find some safe cave somewhere. Well, they're, they're not safe from God's wrath. So we got all these cosmic disturbances being done by Jesus himself. What else happens during the first part of the tribulation? Well, uh, we've already talked a little bit about this, but let me mention again that God is going to save a host of people, particularly uh, a particular group of people called the 144,000, and they're going to be called out as a very specific group of evangelists and witnesses for Him. We, we see that in, in chapter 7. There's a particular amount, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel mentioned there in chapter 7. We've already talked a little bit about them, but I hope you understand that one of God's purposes is not just wrath and judgment and desolation, but also salvation. As long as somebody's breathing, there is hope. But God's also going to use in chapter 11 the two witnesses who, who will minister for Him. Uh, you can read about them there in chapter 11, but uh, there's a lot of conjecture on who are these guys. <laughs> uh, if you really like controversy, just read about these two dudes. Because uh, nobody really knows for sure who they are. There are some people who think they do. Uh, but notice God doesn't name them. Uh, no, you're not going to find their names. You you can try to follow some evidence through the Bible, and you can kind of maybe come up with your reasons why you have guesses. Uh, there, there's three main guys in the lead for who they might be. You have you have Enoch who never died. Uh, you have Elijah, Israel's great prophet, and then the other great prophet of Israel was Moses. So they, they tend to be the three that people talk about the most. I'm not willing to be dogmatic on who these two guys are. Uh, what we do know is there's two of them. They're very influential. They have to be Israelis. They have to be single. They have to be male. And they have to be Christians. <laughs> anyway. You can come to your own conclusions. I'm going to leave it at that. But uh, some people think it's Moses, by the way, uh, one of the guys, because Moses was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and then Elijah was on the other side of Jesus. So a lot of people think, based on the Mount of Transfiguration, these guys are going to show up again. I don't know. But what we do see in these guys, they are producing some great miracles. Certainly Moses and Elijah did those sort of things. Uh, it doesn't really matter who they are. If you focus on these guys and you miss Jesus, you've missed the point, right? They're just witnesses of Christ. <laughs> uh, Jesus is the one in control. He's the one who gives them their powers, and they're serving God. But we also see here in chapter 11, the Antichrist is going to kill these two witnesses. So while they have great power from God, God is still in control even in their death. Antichrist thinks he's in power, he's in control, and he kills them. But look what happens in verse 7. It says here in verse, chapter 11, verse 7, that when they had finished their testimony, 
when God is finished with their testimony, look what happens. The beast, or the Antichrist, that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. (laughs) And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them, and at that At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Ten thousand or seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Who's in charge? Who's in control here? Not Antichrist. So God can even use martyrdom to accomplish his purposes. And so we see here in these verses that God's going to take the two witnesses to heaven. Take them to glory. Mission accomplished. Come home, God says to them. And that's what happens. And that's that's basically, there's other stuff, but pretty much you get the, the idea of what's happening during the first half of the tribulation. So you have the three and a half years, or the 1,260 days whichever you prefer. And some people look at this this part of their Bible and they wonder why. Why? Because verse 1 says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And some people miss Jesus in the midst of all of these judgments and the desolation and the death and the wrath. So why? Well, let me tell you this, friends. God has purposes we've already talked about, and God is going to bring time, as you know it, to an end. He's the one who started time in Genesis 1. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the God of all time. And when he's done with this part of human history, he will bring it to an end, and it's, it's end the time where mankind will have opportunity here to worship God voluntarily. And so after Christ returns, everybody's going to be worshiping God. And Philippians 2 will take place. Every knee will bow to King Jesus. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But number two, it's going to fulfill Israel's prophecy. Because God's not done with Israel. There there were a lot of prophecies fulfilled in Christ's first coming, but there are still yet to be fulfilled And God cannot lie. He will keep His covenants and promises, friends. Now, many of the prophecies about Israel have yet to be fulfilled. We see that there's going to be a temple going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. God's going to use the Antichrist to rebuild that temple. Now, God's not done with Israel. There's some glorious things yet for His people to come. 
So don't lose sight of that as well. God's going to shake people from from their false sense of security. Uh, I think that's one of the things how God is using this COVID virus or the Chinese virus, whatever you want to call it. God has ways of shaking us out of our security because we, we, we think, you know, we're so awesome, right? Or we're safe, we're secure, we're at peace. A stable world leads mankind to think that they can just kind of function independently of God. We don't need God, I'm just, I'm fine by myself. Right? Like Isaiah 53 talks about, all we like sheep, we, we, we tend to go astray. Right? That, that's our tendency as sheep. And so these various judgments from God are going to shake the natural confidence that, that uh, unbelievers in particular have. And, and so many are going to come to Christ. That's one of God's purposes. Another thing to think about why this time period of tribulation is, is ma- mankind's going to be forced to, to choose. It's no more sitting on the fence. <laughs> no more... You know, you know, you know, swayed about and, and not having some fixed position. You know, wandering and you know, kind of like Israel. You know, there at Mount Carmel, where God tells the prophet Elijah, "Tell them, stop your wandering around, stop your wavering. It's 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 Yahweh or the false gods. Stop sitting on the fence. Choose Christ or Antichrist. And mankind is going to have seven years." To make up their mind. And so with all these loving efforts to draw people to salvation, the world is going to witness the greatest soul harvest in human history. It's a glorious time in that way. So it depends on your perspective, friends. Who do you think is in charge? Who's in control? The answer to that question will determine if you think this is a good time or a bad time. The one on the throne in Revelation 4 and 5 is God. It's Jesus, the Holy Spirit. They are the one who, they, the Trinity, reigns supreme over all of creation. What you see here is total authority being worked out. And it's good. Because a good God can only do what is good. And it's for us to believe, to accept. The question is, do you? Do you believe this is true? Are you encouraged by looking at the Lord of Lords and this King of Kings who reigns supreme over all of His creation? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, may God cause you to believe that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us the revelation of Jesus Christ. May we not lose sight of Him in the midst of all of these these judgments and this destruction and desolation. We're thankful that you are a great God, a sovereign God, an awesome God, a great and good God, and you're always those things. May we believe, as you have revealed yourself to be, even you, you're even telling us some things are going to happen in the future. How awesome is that? We, only you could do all of this and get it right. We, we know a lot of prophecies were fulfilled in Christ's first coming, so we know that all those ultimate fulfillments in Christ in His second coming will come true as well. And so may that bring great comfort, encouragement, and confidence. In 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.